What's up, Sunday school? That's when you're supposed to just scream, yes! Why don't you take a second while I'm getting ready up here with this thing. Take a second. Make sure you know the first and last names of everyone at your table or the people around your table. Does uh, has everybody got a Bible? Open it up to Luke 10. Luke, the chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I get, there's Bibles on your table, I think. And, and, and even if you don't want to pick up the Bible on your table, we're going to put the words on the screen. So you could just, the Bible's just everywhere. It's so good. Luke chapter 10. This month we're talking about the parables of Jesus. Everybody say, I love parables. I know you do. And so we're talking about the parables all this month. This morning I want to begin by reading Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You guys like that one? It's a fun one. Let's just read it. Try to keep up with me. I know sometimes when someone reads something, your mind starts wandering, but concentrate. It's an incredible story. Listen to the background of the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And instead of Jesus just saying the answer to the question, he tells a story. He tells a parable. Listen to this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of a robber, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and uh, let's see, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity upon him. He went to him bandaged his wounds, poured an oil, poured on oil and wine. <laughs> I don't know why he'd pour oil and wine on somebody that was hurting. I guess it was just the medical attention of the day, I guess. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your parable. We thank you for your story. We thank you as the Mill Sunday School just for being here, God. 
being here this morning, and we open up our hearts to you. Right now, Jesus, we open our minds to you to learn from your word, to learn from your parables and your stories. And Jesus, we're just happy to be in here. We thank you so much, Jesus. And everyone screamed. <laughs> Somebody. There's always one person that screams. All right. The Mill Sunday School, welcome to the Mill. Thank you for coming early. Usually everyone shows up late to the Mill Sunday School, but something must have happened today that inspired you all to be on time. And so I thank you so much. If you're new, Sunday School is all about going deeper into the ways of God, going deeper into the Bible, going deeper into theology. And I like to think of this group as the nerds of the Mill. You guys are the nerds in a good way of the mill. So turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a nerd and I love it. <laughs> I am a nerd. I'm a nerd too. John Bolin, how many of you there were on Friday when John Bolin spoke about uh, creativity? He spoke about, he said that, he talked about the salt losing its saltiness and he said as a church, we could lose our purpose. And he said, numero uno, the number one uh, sign that the salt has lost its saltiness that the church has lost its purpose, numero uno, number one, is that we begin to stop asking questions. We begin to stop having um, conversation, conversations with people that believe differently than we do. If someone comes up to us and says, hey, do you, do you believe that evolution is possible in the Bible? You would say, shut up, Satan, stop right there. I will not converse with you. You of little faith, why are you being so silly? You just need to have faith. That's a bad response, don't you think? I think we need to have conversations with other people, especially non-believers, especially people that are doubting. And I think it's okay to deconstruct our faith a little bit. To deconstruct our faith so that we can reconstruct it. I I like to work on my car. I have a sweet uh, Ford Escort, 1990. It's all souped up, of course. It's actually, uh, it's actually the, the very first car that I've had when I was 16 when I got a car. It's my Ford Escort. It's, it's still, some of you, that's not that impressive. You're like, I'm, I'm 18, no big deal. I'm 28 years old. I still have my first car. Yeah, I know. So anyways, <laughs> there's some of you are about to give me a standing ovation, I know. Um, I, I just like kind of, I kind of like, stop it. I like fixing my car, and uh, a couple months ago I was fixing it's weird, two things went out at the same time, the timing belt and the fuel pump. And so as some of you that know cars know that those are two random things that have just randomly went wrong. And so if you walked into my garage, you would have saw the fuel tank on this side, you would have saw the engine lowered, parts all over the garage. If you would have looked in there, you would have said, Joe, are you sure you know what you're doing? Looks like there's parts everywhere. And I would have said, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing. I need to deconstruct my car to find the problem so that I can reconstruct it. Same thing with our faith. Right now, I'm I'm reading a book called The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Some of you know Sam Harris is an atheist. He likes to write books about, he kind of begins his book with, I hope that if you believe in God, that by the end of this book, you don't believe in God anymore. And so I, of course, took that as a challenge. (laughs) So I'm reading the book. I'm in like chapter three or four. And his main presupposition is that science is getting really, really good and really, really better, and that we don't need God anymore to explain the unexplainable. He says that we that God is a crutch, that we just 
we can't explain some things, and so we just have this crutch. We say, oh, there must be a God to help us. There must be a God because some things are unexplainable. And I think as a Christian, as, as a Christian, I'm reading through this book, and honestly, it's challenging me. But I think that's okay. It's deconstructing my faith just a little bit so that I could reconstruct it and make it stronger. Because I do believe that God has a proof for himself. That God, that you just look into the world and say, you know what? You see no God, but where you see no God, I see life and I see order. And I do see the existence of a creator. And there's proofs of God. There's the five cosmological proofs of God. There's a moral argument, the proof for God that C.S. Lewis gives. There's an ontological argument for the proof of God. There's proofs of God out there within science. And so that's pretty cool. But I think uh, whenever I'm talking to someone that's an atheist, it only happens every once in a while, where I'll sit down and have some, I have some coffee or something with an atheist, and we'll just kind of argue and g debate a little bit and have a discussion. I, I, we go back and forth on, like, the ideas of God and, like, can you prove God? Can you not prove God? Can you prove that God doesn't exist? And those things are kind of cool, but what usually impacts them is story. What usually impacts them is when I begin to start to tell my testimony because then they're like, wow, so you really believe in God because... You have faith in him because of this, this, and this. And I'll say, yeah, that's why I believe. Not because of some argument that I can make up scientifically, but because I've experienced God with my own being. And they're like, wow, that's pretty cool. And there is proofs out there, but it's the stories that make it so cool. And so this morning, we're going to be studying the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, my friends. And so we should get excited about that. I've gotten very excited about that. And so... Uh, we're going to be, in some ways, deconstructing the parables a little bit. Are you okay with that? Say, it's okay, we're nerds. <laughs> some of you didn't want to say that. It's okay. It's okay to be a nerd. I'm a nerd. I'm a Bible, theology, loving Jesus nerd, and I just like that. So we're going to deconstruct the parables. We're going to ask questions like, were these parables actually Jesus' parables that he made up, or were they already stories out there? that Jesus was just retelling. We're going to ask questions because it's, it's okay to ask questions, right? We're going to ask the question, how can we really know the words of Jesus if the, if the Bible's 2,000 years old? How can we really know that these parables are from Jesus? And then we're going to ask questions like, how, do, how did the people at the time of Jesus, sitting around listening to the story from the mouth of Jesus himself, how might they have interpreted the story or the parable that Jesus was telling so that we can reconstruct so that we can make our faiths better. And so that's what this month's all about. Here's some fun facts to know and tell about the parables. Do you see that on your notes? I know lots of you like to write notes. And so here's some fun facts for you. A parable, this is the definition of a parable, which is kind of like, duh, but I just like to talk about the definition. You know, it's a good beginning point. A parable is a brief, succinct story. A parable is a brief, succinct, succinct excuse me, story, in prose or verse that illustrates a moral or religious lesson. That's the definition. A brief or succinct story in prose or verse that illustrates a moral or religious lesson. And so obviously in the parable, there's two levels of meaning. The parable that we read this morning that we're going to go back to, the Good Samaritan, is a story about a dude that gets robbed and then some guys that pass him by and then one guy takes care of him. That's the story. But beyond that level of understanding, there's another level under the table. Another level of meaning that 
busts out of the Bible and gives us new purpose and a new idea of what Jesus was trying to teach. Here's some more fun facts to, to know and tell. The word parable comes from the Greek parabole. What does that mean? It's the name given by Greek rhetoricians to any fictionative illustration in the form of a brief narrative. And in the Greek culture, in the ancient culture, were there TVs? No, not really. They might have had iPods, but they didn't have podcasts yet. They didn't have radios. They didn't have uh, just all the communication, even the books at that time. Their books were very few and far between, and they were usually handwritten. It was before the printing press, you realize. No radios, no iTunes, no podcasts, nothing. All form of communication was live. And so to be legit, you would take upon the style of rhetoric so that you would be legit. Just like if you turn on the news and you're watching the news, and there's usually a guy or a girl sitting there, and they're like, today in Colorado Springs, they kind of talk like that. You know what I'm talking about, right? They just all talk like that. If you were to turn on the news and there's some guy just like laughing and joking, you'd be like, this isn't the news. This is probably Saturday Night Live making fun of the news because there's a style that gives it credibility. And so in the same way, this Greek style of rhetoric gives the communication, um, it gives the communication authenticity. And so in the same way, Jesus took that under consideration and was very good at explaining parables in the way that people would have understood them. Here's some more fun facts to know and tell about parables. There's 40 parables in the Bible, in the Gospels, that Jesus tells. 40 of them. If you, if you have the definition of a parable that involves a short narrative, <coughs> there's 40 parables in the Gospels. There's, some scholars count 65. If you um, open up your definition of a parable to include things like a word picture, such as when Jesus says, uh, if you see a speck in someone else's eye, remove the board or the plank out of your own eye first. It's not really a parable, but if some scholars would include that as a word picture into their definition of parables, they would say that there's 65 of them. Same thing goes with the vine and the branches. You know, the good vine branches need to be cut off so that the vine can grow. You know that one, right? That's considered a parable by some, and if you include all those, there's 65. There's eight parables in Mark. There's 23 parables in Matthew. There's 24 parables in Luke. And there's no parables in the book of John. Did you know that? Think about it for a second. Yeah, there's no parables in the book of John. But despite there being no parables in the book of John, one-third of Jesus' teaching ministry was in the form of parables. I have a red-letter Bible, and so if I, if I looked at all the red letters, one-third, one-third of all these red letters are parables. Is that a lot? Yeah, that's a whole bunch. One third of every, if one-third of everything you said was in the form of a parable, people would think you were crazy. <laughs> people thought Jesus was a little crazy. That's why they killed him. But he told parables. <laughs> Sorry. They did. They thought he was crazy. There are both Greek and Jewish antecedents of parables. I mean, Jesus didn't invent a par the, the idea of a parable. But there's no evidence of anyone prior to Jesus using parables as consistently, as creatively, and as effectively as Jesus did. Just by sheer number, most scholars would say that Jesus' use of parables was entirely new. I mean, think about it. This guy, the, the parable that we read this morning, this guy asked Jesus a question. Who's my neighbor? He could have said, your neighbor's everybody. But instead, he said, 
me tell you a story. Think about that. If you, I mean, it's just a little, it's uh, the power of a story, I guess, is sometimes underrated. Like if someone in here was just always talking in parables, I would actually think they were pretty cool. Wouldn't you? Yeah, they'd be pretty cool. Here's the power of a story. This is the second part of your notes, third part maybe. Um, how many of you like movies? Some of you do. There's like three hands. <laughs> Get out of here. How many of you like books? How many of you like plays and musicals? Of course you do. We're human. We're supposed to like narratives. We're supposed to like stories. I teach the, um, the school of worship. Do you guys know what the school of worship is? Has anybody ever been in the school of worship? Yes, a few of you have. The school of worship is uh, a school here at New Life Church that trains people to be worship leaders. And so in, I, I'm one of their teachers. I obviously don't know anything about music, um, in case you didn't know. But I know a lot about theology, and I love theology because as I, like all of you, I'm a nerd. And so right in this room, in Tag Chapel, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I teach school of worship. And they have something right now. It's a disease called senioritis. Do you know that disease? Spring fever, that's what it's also called, because they graduate in one week. They graduate next week. And so I'm teaching them eschatology at the very end of the course. It's called eschatology. Do you know what that is? It's a study of the end times. And so I'm talking about the millennium and the tribulation and the rapture, and I'm going on and on. And I'm, I'm no idiot. And I look out there, and they're, they're learning, and they're kind of whispering and talking to one another. And they got their laptops open. They're pretending that they're taking notes but they're really my spacing because they have senioritis. They have spring fever. I realize that. And so during my lecture, I said, let's watch a video clip of the Left Behind series of when they get raptured. And you know what? Everybody cheered. And when it came on, everybody put away their laptops. Everybody stopped talking, and they watched the movie, just this three-minute short clip of the Left Behind people leaving. You know what that shows me, at least? It shows me that there is power in a story, that they're watching Kirk Cameron and all his cool moves and people getting raptured, and that there's a story there, and that story has power. We do The Thorn here at New Life Church. It's the Easter production. We do Wonderland. It's the uh, Christmas production, the, the story of Jesus' birth, and people get saved from that story because it's the power of the story of Jesus Christ. There's power in a story. Have you ever used a story or a word picture or analogy when you were making an argument? Some of you probably had. I took a course in um, seminary that was called homiletics. Does anyone know what homiletics is? You are like, yeah. Yes, it's the study of preaching. And so I took this course, homiletics, the study of preaching, and it was really weird and quite embarrassing because there's like this classroom that it's been made into look like a church. And so there's like pews in this classroom. And there's like a little uh, podium up at front. And the whole classroom only sits like 10 people. And so um, it was like giving a speech all like over again in high school, which just frightens me to death. I mean, I could stand up here right now, and I'm honestly not that nervous. Do I look nervous to you? No, not at all. But I get in front of a class to, ta to give a speech, or it, it just freaks me out to the core, like I'm shaking and stuttering and it's horrible and so I was giving my sermons and you're graded on your stories you have to use two stories in a 10-minute sermon you have to use two stories in order to get an A you have to use those stories 
to illustrate a point or else you fail the class. And so I, of course, used some really good stories because I wanted to pass the class because I'm a nerd like all of you sitting in the middle Sunday school. It's okay. You're nerds. I know it. And so the power of this story is important. I was sitting in a, a class. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in um, biology, and I was sitting in a class called ornithology. Anybody know what that is? I'm using all these fancy words. You know what it is? What is it? Yes, the study of birds. Is anybody else a bird nerd? Get out of here. I was studying. I really was. I know you guys think I'm a real big nerd now, but I really am. Um, that's a good thing. I was studying birds and uh, <laughs> sitting in this lab, this class where there's only about six other people, the teacher and all the other students, the teacher's an atheist, believes in evolution, so much so that there is no God, he would say. And, but it was really weird. Like, he said there's no God, but then he did meditation every day. And I was like, what, what exactly are you meditating to? I don't, I don't get it. But I don't know that he got it either. But we're studying, we're studying birds, and they pay, we pick up a skeleton of a bird, you know, and we're looking at it saying, okay, this is a skeleton of a bird. How might this have evolved out from a mammal or something like that, or from a lizard? How could this evolve from a lizard into this winged creature? And we're talking about it. We're looking at it. And I decided to get to make a word picture, to make an analogy of, because I was a creationist. I still am a creationist, obviously, uh, a Christian that believes whether you're at, when I say creationist, I just mean that God created. And there's lots of Christians that say, God created somehow using evolution. God created in six literal days. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a creationist, uh, and I, was, I just wanted to say, because I, I just got slammed. Have you ever been in a class, like a science class maybe, where you just kind of get slammed over and over again for being a Christian? Is anybody with me? I, I've been there. I've done that. And so I was in this class. We're looking at bird skeletons saying, how could this bird skeleton uh, evolved from a lizard, and I decided during break that when everybody left to get, go get sodas, I pulled out three pennies out of my pocket. I had pennies for some reason, three, three of them. And I set them up, one on top of another, on the table, in the middle of the table, and I just walked away, went and got my soda, came back as the class, and I was just waiting. I was waiting for someone to say, who put these pennies here? Do you see it? So, so the girl sitting next to me said, who put these pennies here? And I jumped on it. I said, you asked who stacked three coins on top of another. But then when you're looking at this bird skeleton, you asked how did the bird skeleton come into existence? Shouldn't you ask who put the bird skeleton on the desk? <laughs> I know, I know. And so that was my analogy. That was my word picture. And everyone sitting there was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> and they, they just kept on. But then afterwards, the girl that asked who put the coins there, she came up to me and said, you know what, I'm not so sure that I believe in this whole evolution thing. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate your beliefs as a Christian. I appreciate that you have a different viewpoint that there may be a God who had his hand into the design of the skeletons of birds. And we talked about that for a little while. And she didn't become a Christian right then and there. But at least we had a conversation about it. At least the door was open. At least that she felt like she could tell somebody else, you know what, I don't know if I totally accept this whole evolution thing either. And I thought it was kind of cool. The power of a story. The power of um, 
at least a narrative or something that you could see is powerful, don't you think? I think so. I know you do. Turn to, turn to Matthew 13 real quick. I'm going to give you the purpose of why Jesus spoke in parables. I kind of just gave you one, that the, that the parables, the stories themselves have power beyond just explaining truths. Instead of telling somebody, um, your neighbor is everybody, Jesus told a story about that, and it was pretty powerful. Matthew 13, I'm sorry, verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked him, why do you speak in parables? Uh, speak to the people in parables. So he's about to answer the question of why one-third of his entire teaching ministry, at least the, of the parts that we have recorded right here in the New Testament, one-third of the words in red are part of parables. Jesus is about to explain why he spoke in parables. Are you ready to learn? He's, he's going to tell us why. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he does have will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah. Through seeing, you do not see. Through hearing, you, they do not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And he continues on with quoting Isaiah. He basically says that there are secrets of the kingdom of God. And some people might interpret this, what Jesus just said, is that Jesus was a secretive dude, and he wanted to keep everything secretive, and he really didn't want everyone to know who he was or his power, that he wanted to keep it secret, that um, he wanted to keep things hidden, that he wanted you to come to his secret meetings and learn from his secret ways, and he was all into secrets. But I don't think that's the right interpretation. I think, and I'll explain this, I think that Jesus told parables because he demanded a response. Write that down. Jesus told parables because he demanded a response. He begins by saying, in verse 11, he says, why do you speak in parables? Then he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. And when he was saying given to you, he was talking to his disciples. Verse 10 said the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus said, the secrets have been given to you, to you, the ones that are responding, but it hasn't yet been given to them because they haven't responded. Let me clarify that point, because like, you might be thinking, it doesn't say that. Yes, it does. <laughs> at, the, at the end of after he quotes, after he quotes the, the book of Isaiah, verse 18, he says, listen to the, what the parable of the sower means. And he retells the parable of the sower with explanation. He says that seed from a sower, the seed of the kingdom of God, the seeds of the knowledge of who Christ is, has been spread um, all over different, all over the, all over this land, and on some of the soil, it's fallen on hard, rocky soil, and so when it falls on that soil, it doesn't have any, uh, it can't get into the ground, and so birds come and they take it away. And he says that the birds are Satan. Satan comes and just snatches away any of the seed that's been planted. And then he said there's some other seed that lands upon grass or land that has lots of weeds in it, so it starts to grow up. And then what happens? The thorns come and they squash it out so that, no, the, so that the seed can no longer grow. But then he says the fourth type of, of, of soil is a soft soil, a soil that is ready to hear the gospel of Christ. And when, it fall, when a seed falls on that soil, it grows up and it becomes yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. 
And so he gives them the parable of the, of the seeds to explain why he talks in parables. That's good, don't you think? Jesus is a genius. He's a genius. You should laugh at that because he was God. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's why he was so smart. <laughs> the, so I would say that Jesus talked in parables not to keep things secretive from people, but to, de- to demand a response. I'm the kind of student that when a teacher says something that I don't really understand, I write it down, and then sometimes after class or sometimes at home, I'll, I'll whip out the textbook, and I'll find the answer to what the teacher was talking about. I'm the kind of teacher, uh, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm the kind of student that likes to talk to the teacher after class. I think Jesus was telling parables. Instead of just telling um, truth, like, I guess, Confucian, you know, like the words of Confucian, like the fortune cookie kind of truths that are out there in the, in the, uh, like the Eastern religions. That's just truth after truth after truth. Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus told stories, I think, so that people could hear the story and then say, wait a minute, what does this story really mean? That they would come to Jesus afterwards and say, okay, Jesus, can you re-explain to me the parable? That most of the people wouldn't, they would just leave after hearing Jesus and they would leave and go home and say, yeah, we heard some nice stories from a cool guy. But some people would respond to the message and come to Jesus and speak to him afterwards and say, can you re-explain the parable, the story that you told me? I think that's what's so cool. I had a youth pastor that said that the hardest distance to move is the 12 inches from your head to your heart. Have you heard that before? It's good, huh? That you can know some truth. That if Jesus just came like Confucianist and, and said a whole bunch of truths, you know, these little, par- these little proverbs, then people wouldn't demand a response from that. But Jesus told stories because for some reason, stories and movies and books break into your heart and, and let you respond easier. How many of you have ever cried at a movie? Don't lie. So all the guys are like, oh, what? I've never done it. What? Yeah, you have. Don't lie. We've all cried at movies because there's a story there. There's a narrative that touches us. It's easier to respond to a story than just someone telling us truth. That's why in my sermon preaching class, my homiletics class, we had to tell stories. We couldn't just stand up there and say, here's what's true. Here's another thing that's true. Here's another thing that's true. And then sit down and call that a sermon. No, we need illustrations. As human beings, we need to respond to the message. And I think what helps us is those stories, those parables. Rick Warren, you guys know who Rick Warren is? He wrote like Purpose Driven Everything. <laughs> purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Youth Ministry, uh, Purpose Driven Teens, right? Purpose Driven Missions, I don't know. Maybe, probably so, I mean, why not? Um, I was, I was it, there, Rick Warren had a dinner for a bunch of pastors here in Colorado Springs a couple weeks ago. I think I shared this a couple Sunday schools ago, just because it was so cool. I mean, I got to meet, meet Rick Warren. He's a pretty cool guy, and I like meeting famous people, and he's famous. His book is the number one seller besides the Bible in the United States. His book, Purpose Driven Life, is the number one seller. Think about that for a second, that God used this man to bring about a simple message, and even he said, you know, these principles, the Purpose Driven Life, there are principles that have been around 2,000 years. I don't know why it became so popular in my book. And I was like, 
yeah, why did it? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> so he wrote Purpose Driven Life, and now he's really into, a lot of you know that he's really into uh, the AIDS, AIDS crisis, the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And so he gets to meet with Bono, 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 whatever his name is. Um, and he, he gets to do cool things with the One Project and stuff like that. And he said that he knew about the AIDS crisis in Africa. He knew the numbers. He knew that in most countries in Africa that there's that 25% of the adults in some of these countries have AIDS and are going to die prematurely in our lifetime. That's one out of every four people in some of these African countries are going to die. And he said he knew all that, and it was in his head, but he didn't respond to it until he went to Africa and he saw it and he met boys and girls with names and he learned their stories about how they're living in orphanages because both of their parents had died from AIDS. Until he experienced their stories, then the, the, the whole idea of the AIDS epidemic moved from his head into his heart and he responded. It's that story that makes it, that makes it so much easier for someone to respond. And I think that's why Jesus talks in parables, to get us, to get the people surrounding him to respond. It's good, don't you think? It's real good. All right, let's interpret the parable of the Good Samaritan. Shall we? We shall. Turn to Luke chapter 10. That's what we read this morning. So we already kind of read it. Now we're going to interpret a little bit. We're going to deep uh, dig deep into this parable and see what we can find from some of the things that Jesus talks about, some of the specifics that we may have overlooked because the parable, honestly, wasn't to us. Jesus told this parable about 2,000 years ago to a real group of people, to a real dude that was asking him questions. We live in 2007 here in uh, Colorado Springs, right? So the parable's not directed straight to us, but it's for us. Have you heard me say that before if you've been coming to Mill Sunday School? That the Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. You should write down that point. All right, let's look at this. In the Middle Ages, they had a... Um, so here's how to not interpret the, this passage. In the Middle Ages, they, they were very allegorical in the way that they interpreted passages. And in the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages is kind of a time when everyone, I've coined it as the thousand-year camping trip. When everyone was just kind of camping and, and trying to survive and working fields and no one was, was reading books. Uh, hardly, the, the, the literacy rate was like down to like 0.1% in the Middle Ages in Europe. And so everyone was just kind of dumb. Is it okay to say that? I'm not offending any of you because unless you really like the Middle Ages, you go to the Renaissance Fair. And then I could make fun of you for other reasons. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. I'm sorry. So I'm sure there's someone in here that's highly offended that probably today is going to go to the Renaissance Fair and cry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Wait, no, wait. I'm not. The Renaissance was good. It was the Middle Ages that was bad. The Renaissance was right after the Middle Ages. So you could be a Renaissance lover because that's when they started reading books again and digging into the Bible. And so the Renaissance was good. The Middle Ages was bad. In the Middle Ages, I say all that to say that in the Middle Ages, the, the popular um, interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan was this. They said that the man that gets robbed is Adam. I don't know where they get that from, but that's what they said. That Jerusalem, that the man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
that Jerusalem's the new heaven, that Jericho is the moon, obviously, that the robbers are the devil. I can kind of see that one. That the good Samaritan is Christ. I can kind of see that one. That the inn that, that, the, that, that he brings them to is the church. And that the innkeeper is none other than the Apostle Paul. I don't know where they got that. But that's just how they interpret it. That's a bad way of interpreting it. If, you, if you're the kind of person that, and I'm making fun of a lot of people today, but you probably deserve to be made fun of. If you're the kind of person that just opens the Bible, like just randomly, and says, okay, God, what should I do today? And you just start reading. You know that that's bad, right? That's not really how we're supposed to do it. You're supposed to look at the passage and say, okay, God, if you really want me to learn something here, let's get out a study Bible. Let's see who this was written to, why it was written at the time it was written in, so on and so forth, and apply the message from the words that are written, right? Because there's a lot of weird verses in the Bible that would say, like, I don't know, let me just do it. Won't that be fun? I myself am against you, Jerusalem. I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. So if that was your verse for the day, and I, I really just opened that up to Ezekiel 5, 10. So anyways, don't do that. That's a bad thing to do. We need to get down into the nitty-gritty of the story. Are you ready to get into the nitty-gritty of the story? Yes, you are. Uh, let's see. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Who are these experts in the law? Yeah, probably a Pharisee. Probably someone that knew a whole bunch about God, that knew a whole bunch about the ways uh, of God. And we, as, as living here in Colorado Springs, 2007, New Life Church, reading our Bible, we hear the, the term Pharisees, and we automatically think, we think good guys or bad guys. Yeah, we automatically think bad guys. But if you're sitting around Jesus, what would they think? Would they think the Pharisees were good guys or bad guys? They would think that they were the good guys. And so Jesus, a lot of his parables that we'll get into this next month uh, are directed to the Pharisees. And if you're a person sitting and listening to Jesus, you would have thought that the Pharisee was a good guy. But we already know that they were bad guys because we've been reading the Bible and studying it, and Jesus has a lot of bad things to say about the Pharisees. But that's what I just wanted to give you that point. And it, it, this teacher says, what, was, excuse me, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So you realize that the law is the first five books of the Bible. It's this huge chunk of bookage in the Bible. And Jesus is saying, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the dude says, a great answer, a correct answer. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the correct answer? Yes, it is. And if you're not sure, read the next line. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. So that is the correct answer. I mean, out of all the answers he could have given, he could have said, oh, the whole Old Testament is about bringing um, sacrifices of animals to God, killing them for the forgiveness of your sins. Is that in the Old Testament? Sure it is. And if someone read the whole Old Testament and was studying it, they might come to the conclusion that the whole Old Testament is about killing animals for the forgiveness of your sins. But that answer would be wrong. And let me tell you just for instance why it's wrong. Because Hebrews 10, 
says that the law is only a shadow of the good things coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, wouldn't they have stopped offering them? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. Do you see it? So there's lots of incorrect answers that this dude could have said to Jesus, but he gives the correct answer. He quotes the Shema. Have you heard of that before? Nobody? Has anyone ever heard of a Jewish person? Of course you have. Some of you uh, may even be Jewish as far as uh, nationality. But a good Jewish person, not like the Adam Sandler Jewish person, but a real, I mean, <clears throat> let me rephrase that. A real, he's really Jewish in nationality. I don't know how much he practices his religion. Maybe he does practice his religion. And a good Jewish person would in the morning and in the evening say the Shema. What in the world is the Shema? Well, it's the verse that was just quoted back to you. It's in Deuteronomy 6.5. If you go to Deuteronomy 6.5, it says just what the man just quoted. Let's go to it just for fun. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Hear, O Israel. <coughs> Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. That's why they call this verse the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is the Shema. That is what a good Jewish person would read every single morning and every single evening as they begin their prayers. I was in the, um, the World Prayer Center one time during noon worship. Um, it was back, when, um, back in the day, like a couple years ago, when uh, do you guys know Terry McCallman is? If you don't, ask your parents. They do. Um, Terry McCallman leads really passionate worship. Uh, and for a while, he was doing a noon worship on Wednesdays, I think, in the World Prayer Center. And I went to that. And then I went to the bathroom. And I was in the bathroom in a stall. Let's just say I was TCB, taking care of business. I won't give you any more details. And a man walks in with two little boys. <clears throat> a man walks in with two little boys and says, what you just saw in there was emotionalism. What you just saw in there was, was people just getting really excited and emotional and trying to worship God. That's not how we worship, right, boys? And they said, yes. And, we, and then he said, we worship in the synagogue on Saturdays, right? And they said, yeah. And then, and then he said, all right, let's say our prayers. And both little boys started saying, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. They both started saying the Shema in Hebrew, that that was their prayer. And because they were Jewish. And I don't know why they were coming to noon worship if the father was just trying to show little boys uh, how Christians do it. I don't know what was going on. I was just in the bathroom, TCB, taking care of business. But that is what a good Jewish person would say. And so <clears throat> Jesus, the, the, the dude that says, Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answers extremely correctly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love the neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, correct, do this and you will live. And then verse 29 says that the man, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself, meaning that he wanted to just say, oh, yeah, I'm cool, I'm good, I'm, I'm good, in, in good standing before God, I'm justified before God. So we asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus could have said, the answer to this question is everyone. <clears throat> Jesus could have said, everyone. That's who your neighbor is. But instead, he tells a story, demands a response. And this story is <clears throat> pretty radical because of the idea of a Samaritan. And this might blow your mind this morning. It's, it's the whole, the key of understanding this parable is understanding who a Samaritan is. And so let's talk about it. If you were sitting there listening to Jesus, if you were Jewish and in Israel, you would have known exactly who the Samaritans were. Some of you might just say, aren't the Samaritans just people from Samaria? Yes, they are. But what makes them so important in this story? Well, let's look at it. Jesus starts to tell the parable. He says basically that a man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls into the hands of robbers, kind of a bad day, strips him of his clothes, really bad day, beat him, that's a really bad day, went away, bad day, leaving him half dead, that's a really bad day. That's, I mean, I had a bad day when I accidentally ran over, uh, never mind. <laughs> it was a bad day. But this was a really bad day. Do you want to, I, I, I don't want to even tell you, because some of you will start crying. It's bad. <clears throat> I ran over a kitten. I don't know why I'm laughing. It w I actually, <clears throat> I don't like cats. I didn't even tell Erica this. I look at my wife's like freaking out. I know. It was it was a bad day for me, and I actually teared up. I don't even like cats, but I hit this little kitten and I teared up, and I just thought of like the little girl that owned it, and I was like, oh man, what a bad day. I shouldn't have told that story. I know. You know why? Because stories have power. And now you're all going to be thinking of this poor little kitten and this poor little girl because stories have power. That's why I told it. Yeah, no, no big deal. I'm just making another point. <clears throat> so they, they beat up this guy, and he's there, and he's half dead. I mean, can you imagine? Someone actually left almost for dead in the, in the street, half naked, or it says just that they stripped him of his clothes. And a priest, a religious leader, walks by, and he makes sure to walks, walk by on the other side of the road, as to not see the man that's been beaten, as to not see the man that's been stripped. That's bad, huh? It's not, worth, it's not what priests, religious leaders are called to do. And then he says a Levite. So too a Levite. A Levite would be the layperson. It'd be all of you that are not paid by, uh, the, that are not religious leaders. Maybe you lead small groups, and so that wouldn't apply to you. But just a layperson, someone that comes to church, someone that is in the line of, the, of um in the line of the Levites, and so they would be in the line of the priesthood, just lay people. <clears throat> and so, too, he walks by on the other side of the road, and then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came, and we know the rest of the story, that the Samaritan comes, and he takes care of him, and he brings him to an inn. He puts him, and that's what the picture is on the, on the front of your skillet. We call them skillets because they're Sunday school millets. We have a lot of creative people around here, I'm You see the guy taking care of the guy that's been stripped naked. He's about to put him on his mule. He's about to take him to the inn. And then he says that he gives him two silver coins. In my study Bible, it says that two silver coins were enough to take care of somebody in an inn for two months. If you put somebody up in a hotel for two months and gave them medical attention and food for two months, that's a lot of money, right? That's a whole lot of money. Nowadays and back then, 
two silver coins, that's a big chunk of money. And then he says, when I come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repay you even more if you had any more um, out, outgoing um, expenses. I'm going to reimburse you. And so who is this Samaritan? Are you ready to dig deep and see who the Samaritans are? The Samaritans, my friends, you have to go back to the book of Kings. When you go back to the book of Kings, you realize that the northern kingdom was taken over by Assyria. This pagan, adulterous country comes in and takes over the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Jewish people take on some of these customs of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians take on some of the customs of the Jewish people. And they intermarry. And they have children. And those children, the line of descent, those are who the Samaritans are. So we think, as, as all, all of us should think, oh, well, we're not prejudiced against people. You know, let's, let's hold people for who they are, right? That's how we're supposed to think, right? In fact, that's the, that's the purpose of the parable. But a Jewish person would look at a Samaritan and say, your line of people claims to be totally a part of Israel, even though you're not. You're not part of Israel. Some of you may have come from divorced homes, and I, I have a friend right now that um, her dad is remarrying right now, and she's like our age, in her 20s. Her dad is remarrying, and, and, and his, his wife will have little kids, children, and so it's this hard tension of what she feels for her daddy. Her dad, like she's saying, you know, that's my daddy, but now dad is calling these kids, you know, that those kids are now my stepbrothers and stepsisters. It's a hard time. It's natural to feel some, some emotional angst over a change in a household and to say that those, these kids of this lady aren't my brothers and sisters. And so maybe in the same way, the, the Jews look to the Samaritans and say, you're not really a part of us. And in the Old Testament, the old way of doing things that, is that God had a chosen people. The Israelites were God's chosen people. And God told them not to intermarry and have children with pagan, the surrounding pagan tribes. In, in Ezra 10.2, it says, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. Throughout the Old Testament, it says, Do not get tattoos. Do not cut your body. Do not wear certain um, ornaments of jewelry like the pagan people that surround you because God was calling them to be holy. You know what holy means? It means set apart set apart for God. And so God, throughout the whole Old Testament, said, be set apart. And here's this group of people, the Samaritans, that are saying, oh, we're totally a part of you, Israel. We're not stepbrothers, we're just brothers. And the Jewish people are saying, no, you come from a line of people and still to this day hold on to beliefs that are part of the Assyrian culture. Can you see why there would be some prejudice there? Can you see why there would be some racism there in between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's what was going on. That's, that's who a Samaritan is. And so Jesus says, instead of saying, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is everyone. Instead of saying everyone, Jesus tells a story about the Samaritans, those that are offshoots of Israel, those that are the stepbrothers and stepsisters of Israel being your neighbor. Jesus breaks prejudice. He breaks the racism of the day, and he says that every single person is your neighbor. Do you see the power in that story? Do you see the power in, in understanding who the Samaritans were? 
It's being creative. Instead of just giving an answer, oh, your neighbor is everyone, Jesus breaks through creativity and tells a story. I have ten, the top ten mental blocks to creativity. Do you want to hear them? Top ten mental blocks to creativity is, is only looking for the right answer, saying, that's not logical, saying, follow the rules, be practical. Number five, avoid ambiguity, saying, to error is wrong, that play is frivolous. Number eight, saying, that's not my er area. S number nine, saying, don't be foolish. And number 10, saying the words, I'm not creative, is a block to creativity. But I think God calls us to creativity. He calls us to communicate the gospel well. He calls us to tell stories about our faith, to tell and retell our testimony. I mean, think about it. One-third of all of Jesus' teachings were parables. Pretty cool, don't you think? There's the story of this teacher. Um, she's teaching a class, and it's the old school classrooms when everybody's in the same grade in the same classroom. And, sh and she's teaching a, teaching a lesson on arithmetic. She has a bunch of apples to show that two apples plus three apples equals five apples. She has all these apples up there. And in the back is a boy that is younger than the, most of the students, is mentally disabled. And she knows that the boy, this young boy, probably won't understand arithmetic. But she wants to call on him so that he can give a good answer. So she calls on him and just says, what color, Johnny, is this apple? And Johnny says, it's white. Teacher's like, man, I just, I just gave you a really easy question so that you could give the correct answer so that, you know, you could be involved in this lesson. Instead, he gives a wrong answer. And so she has to say, Johnny, I'm sorry, the apple's red. So Johnny slowly gets up out of his chair, walks up patiently to the teacher, grabs the apple, <laughs> takes a bite, and then shows the teacher. Says, look, it's white. Think about it. The whole apple is white, in fact. It's just that tiny little layer of skin on the outside that makes it red. So Jesus says parables so that we might get to the white of the apple, so that we might get to the inside of the apple, to what the true story is all about. That's how our God works. Let's pray to him. Jesus, we just thank you for parables. We thank you that you told us stories in such a way that our souls can resonate with those stories, that we can respond in a heart way to your truths, Jesus. We just thank you for that, God. In this whole month, as the Mill Sunday School, God, we just ask you to increase our knowledge of these parables. Help us understand your ways. Help us to understand your story so that we might know you better, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for this day. And everybody said, Amen.